to this very often neglected book, um, a book that many Christians are fearful of. Um, but I guess we, we've, uh, I was going to say we've got the easier part to look at in the letters to the churches, not so much um, stuff that we cannot understand. It's fairly straightforward. Um, all seven churches would have received all seven letters, each uh, hearing what Jesus had to say to each church. I can always remember working for London Transport when privatisation came in. And the one thing they stressed in our particular company when they split it up into the different private companies, they didn't want any of us to be heard saying, oh, well, at least we're no worse than them. Um, you know, we don't want you comparing yourselves to the other companies. You set your own standards and you work to those standards, no comparisons. Uh, you know, we might be able to learn from them if they do things better, but no comparisons. And it was interesting just this week, something I've, I've never really, I guess, never given a great deal of thought to. But I was listening to, and I've stolen it really from, from Alistair Begg, I was listening to him. And he was saying, you know, how Christians, how Christians compare their Christian life, how they compare themselves um, as to whether, you know, we, we think we're up to scratch or not. And he said, the last thing you do is to compare yourself with a next door neighbor or somebody down the street. You don't compare yourself to somebody who sits next to you in the pew in church. The only way you will know if you are truly converted, is to compare yourself with your old self. Has there been a change in your life? And that is the standard. We need to know if there's been true conversion, what were you, what are you now? That is the only comparison that we ever have to make. And it would have been the same with these churches as Jesus wrote to, to specifically to each church, they weren't to compare themselves with the one down the road. They were to listen to what Jesus had to say about them. I wonder if I can just indulge you for a while. I don't know, hands up, has anybody actually ever been to Ephesus, had the privilege of going there on holiday? Is your hand up, Chloe? Oh yes, she has, good. Well, you need to listen to this first, but anyway, but I'll just, just a bit really uh, from Tom Wright on, on um, not his actual commentary, but how he starts off a bit of commentary on this letter. He says, the first time I visited Ephesus, I was overwhelmed with the size and scale of the place. Massive buildings still stand, dating back to the first century and beyond. The amphitheater alone takes your breath away. Streets, houses, shops, it's possible to get a very good picture there of what life was like. There is a gladiator's graveyard, indicating how some of the population spent their free time. The Temple of Artemis, the Greek name for the Roman goddess Diana, was one of the wonders of the world. And the Romans, when they established temples to the city of Rome and to the emperor, did so carefully within the massive precincts of Artemis herself. The population of the city in the first century has been estimated at around a quarter of a million. It was the local capital, the most important city in the whole of Western Turkey. 
the one thing you don't see today in Ephesus or in the surrounding modern towns and villages is an active church. To begin with, this may not seem odd, but Ephesus had been one of the major centers of early Christianity. By the early second century, Christian writers were holding up Ephesus as a great example of Christian faith, life, and witness. For several centuries, it held a position of preeminence, and one of the great fifth century church councils was held there in AD 431. Archaeologists have found a church building in the city, which may be where the council took place but there are, to repeat, no active churches there today. And if there are any Christians there, they're in hiding. That would have been almost unthinkable to John's audience, as it would be for us to imagine our great churches empty and in ruins, with no new Christian fellowships rising up to take their place. But this sense of de devastation of a place where there was once a thriving Christian witness, but where there is no more, is precisely what Jesus warned the Ephesian church about in verse five of our reading today. We won't ever know if this particular church and this particular fellowship, remember the church is the, is the, the, the people, the fellowship, whether this church did take notice of this letter, whether they did actually repent uh, and come to their senses, because the church still did exist, as we just read there, well into the, the fifth century in, in 400, where they had the church council. But then many churches do tend to exist because Christians will carry on the work, uh, determined to carry it on, even though uh, the lampstand may well have been removed. But we would never know whether they actually repented uh, or not this particular fellowship. But here we go. I just thought what I will do, first of all, actually, is to read um, from Ephesians chapter 3. Just a few verses from Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul wrote to this church. And this church was very precious to Paul. It was the church that he actually set up. He spent the best part of three years there working together with the people. It's in tra tradition has it that when the apostles uh, were driven out and the Christians were driven out of Jerusalem, uh, that the apostle John himself actually spent time with the Ephesian fellowship. Timothy was an elder there as well. Uh, this was a strong, strong church. And Paul wrote to them uh, back in the day, some 30, 40 years before the, the revelation. And Paul said, I am, very, I am the very least of all God's people. However, he gave me this task as a gift, that I should be the one to tell the Gentiles the good news of the king's wealth, wealth no one could begin to count. My job is to make clear to everyone just what the secret plan is, the purpose that's been hidden from the very beginning of the world in God who created all things. This is it, that God's wisdom in all its rich variety was to be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places listen to this, through the church. This was God's eternal purpose, and he's accomplished it in King Jesus, our Lord. We have confidence and access to God in him, in full assurance through his faithfulness. So I beg you, don't lose heart because of my sufferings on your behalf. That's your glory. Because of this, I am kneeling down before the Father, the one who gives the name of family to every family that there is in heaven and on earth, 
My prayer is this, that he will lay out all the riches of his glory to give you strength and power through his spirit in your inner being, that the king may make his home in your hearts through faith, that love may be your root, your firm foundation, and that you may be strong enough to grasp the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the king's love, though actually it's so deep that nobody can really know it. So may God fill you with all his fullness. That was Paul writing some 30, 40 years before this revelation of Jesus Christ came to the church, rooted in love. Interesting on that first hymn, wasn't it? The word on the line, loveless in strength. Loveless in strength. Jesus speaking, tithe you Pharisees, you tithe your mint and your rue and herbs of all kinds, and you have sidestepped justice, mercy, and the love of God. Sidestepped God's love. Very interesting that every letter to every church in this revelation, I know, I know what you're up to. Jesus in the first chapter there is seen by John walking amongst the lampstands just as he walks amongst the churches. And it wasn't then, it's the same today. Jesus walks amongst the churches. Jesus knows what every church is up to. We've fallen into this church, had fallen into a trap. It had fallen into the same trap as the Pharisees had fallen into. Let's remember that as we look at these scriptures tonight, that God, Paul writing to Timothy, said that all scripture is God breathed and it's useful for what? Comforting? Well, there is comforting God's word, but no, it's useful for teaching, rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so that the man or the church of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Quote Alistair Begg again, scripture is not meant to charm us, it's meant to change us. The church which Paul himself founded, you can read all about it in Acts, chapters 18, 19, 20, and we went to Ephesus, caused a riot, you remember? Ephesus was a little bit of a tourist attraction with this temple where people would go. People would be drawn to it, the temple of Artemis or Diana, one of the seven wonders of the old world. You remember that Paul caused a riot there? Do you remember the story of Demetrius who used to make the little trinkets, the little models of God, Diana and Artemis? And Paul went in with this new message of Jesus and many were turning to, to, to Lord Jesus. And of course they were giving up on these things and Demetrius was losing money. And they caused a riot and Paul was eventually told to stand down, to cool it down a little bit. Uh, and eventually he was, he was driven out. But the church was strong. The church was strong. People were being saved. All that was going on there. And it was getting bigger and bigger. But Jesus comes to them and says, I know, 
I know what you're doing. I know what's going on. I've got you in my hand. Wonder what went wrong. I wonder what went wrong. When you read it against some of the others, if you go to comparisons, which we shouldn't, but if we did, it really doesn't sound too bad, does it? Wrote to them when Jesus was speaking to them, and he says, These are the, you know, these are the words of the one who holds seven stars in his right hand and who walks in among the seven golden lampstands. I know what you have done, I know your hard labor and patience. I know that you cannot tolerate evil people and that you have been tested, that you have tested those who pass themselves off as apostles, but are not. And you have demonstrated them to be frauds. You have patience and you have put up with a great deal because of my name and you haven't grown weary. What a commendation. Will we be pleased with that at Great Parks? I think I would pretty much, pretty much, pretty good. You've stood up, you've stood up for the faith. You don't tolerate evil people. You've got great patience. You put up with a great deal in my name and you haven't grown weary. A lot of commentators seem to think that this is a loss of enthusiasm. You know, the first, the, the first fruit, the, the first excitement of setting up this church and, and seeing people come into the Lord Jesus and, and um, you know, people visiting and, and visiting preachers and things that really got their enthusiasm going and as they were starting up the work and new things they were doing. But I don't think it is a case of losing their enthusiasm because it says there in verse five, that you haven't grown weary. You haven't grown weary, you're still working. You're still working flat out. And that's wonderful. That's really commendable. It's what you're doing. So what's gone wrong? Suddenly Jesus turns it. You could just imagine the guy who's given the who's given the job of reading this letter out to the congregation and he gets to this part and yeah, you have patience and you have put up with a great deal because of my name and you haven't grown weary. Then he stops for a moment and says, Well, I think now for a moment, perhaps we ought to stop and have a cup of tea if someone would like to put the kettle on and we'll have a biscuit. Um, and then we'll come back to this letter to, to see what the rest of it is. Because so far, so good. But then they come back to verse four. I do, however, have one thing against you. You have abandoned the love you showed at the beginning. You have abandoned the love you showed at the beginning. Doesn't say they'd lost it. Interesting, isn't it? Doesn't say they've lost the love. There's lots of little words that, uh, you know, that uh, various translations um, have, have used various words um, to, to um, describe this. I wrote one or two of them down if I can find them on my notes. There we go, stuck together. Um, 
Can you hear me? Oh, you lost me. I lost you for a moment. Sorry, sorry, I lost you for a moment. I had my notes. I must have pressed the button that my notes were resting on. Yeah, they'd lost. They, they hadn't lost. They hadn't lost this, but they, they, you know, Jesus said, I hold this against you. You've abandoned it. Um, I still can't find a bit of paper, even though I pressed the wrong button. But all these various words that, you know, they neglected. They neglected God's love. And how easy is that? How easy is that to actually get so engrossed in working for the Lord? How engrossed in your work and what you're doing that suddenly these things begin to take preeminence? Take to preeminence over our worship over our adoration, over our love for the Lord. The default position, the default position for every Christian is love, is love. I don't want you working, says Jesus. It's fine that you're doing these things. It's fine that you're doing all this work, but if you're doing it without love, then I don't want you doing it. I don't want you doing it. And this is a serious business because Jesus gives them the antidote and he tells them to repent. That's a big word, as I always say. One of my, fa my favourite sayings, although it's becoming less of a favourite saying because I hear myself saying it too much, but it's the forgotten word. It's the forgotten word of the 21st century church. We don't teach people, we don't bring people to that point of repentance. And Jesus is saying to these people, look, you've neglected your love. You've forgotten about it. You have you. And it doesn't say it's just been done or the devil stepped in. And it's him who's caused this, it's you. It's your responsibility and you have neglected your love. You're doing all this, you're going through the motions. There was a wonderful, I'll try and find that without losing myself again. There's a wonderful um, saying I came across, never, never heard this before. But somebody says that this church has fallen into mechanical orthodoxy. Mechanical, they were just going through the mechanics of running a church. They're just going through the mechanics of running a church. In many respects, this would eventually have led and possibly even had led to the fact that they didn't realize and they'd forgotten why they were running a church. And doesn't that happen? So many churches these days more interested in entertaining, more interested in making the message acceptable to the world, that we've forgotten why we're here in the first place. The church had become sophisticated. Perhaps the church had begun to entertain more than teach, becoming more appealing to the word.
The church has become strong, but stale. Wonder if you've ever read the Westminster Confession of Faith that they wrote out at the big meeting they had in 1640. The Westminster Confession starts off with the very line, the very first, the very first line of the Confession of Faith, the chief aim of man. The chief aim of man is not to overcome evil people or to test those who pass themselves off as apostles, or to have patience, or to have plenty of energy and determination. That is not the chief aim of man. It's not the chief aim of the Christian. The chief aim of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And unless you're enjoying God, you will not enjoy the work to which he has called you. The onus is on the church. The onus is on us as individuals. It is them that has neglected. It is them that's abandoned their first love. Now it's up to them to get it back. And Jesus is, 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 is telling them that that first love is really what he holds against them because they've neglected it for all their good works, for all their good works, for all the time that they're putting into running this church, for all the time in building up this church, for all the things that they've got right, this one thing he holds against them, and if they don't put that one thing right, he will come and take the lampstand from their midst. That's how serious this is. And what does he say? What does he say? From verse four, I do, however, have one thing against you. You have abandoned the love you showed at the beginning. So, so, Remember the place from which you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at the beginning. If not, if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand out of its place. Now, when I said that we don't know whether this church did actually um, repent, and you think to yourself, well, hold on a minute, 400 years down the line, it was still going. Well, 400 years is nothing in the sight of the Lord, and it's quite possible that they didn't repent, that the lampstand was removed, or they did repent, and the Lord gave them that uh, time. But we don't really know, we can only speculate. But here what they had to do, they had to remember the height from which they had fallen. And there's real resonance here with the story of the prodigal son, isn't there? Do you remember when he was sitting in the pigsty and eating the pig food? He remembered. He remembered the height from which he had fallen. Suddenly came to his senses. Even my father's servants are better off than what I am now. So what did he do? Well, he repented. That's when he repented. 
because repent means to turn around, change your ways, walk in the opposite direction. So he got up and he walked away from the situation in which he was in and he returned to his father. And the good thing is that Jesus warns people, doesn't he? It wasn't a question here of, well, you're doing all right, but no, you've lost your love, so hard luck, boys, out you go. No. Here it is. You're disappointing me in this respect. I really do hold this against you, but if you put it right, then you can go again. And Jesus restored, just as the Father restored the Son to his rightful place in the home, God will restore us and his church back to what it should be. Used to sing an old hymn, didn't we? Sometimes we sing it occasionally. Um, standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let his praises ring, glory in the highest I will shout and sing, standing on the promises of God. And that's really cheerful, isn't it? Really builds us up, gives us great encouragement. Well, I'll tell you what, there's a promise here that you wouldn't want to be standing on. And the promise is I will come. I will come and remove your lampstand out of its place. There's two um, particular things here that, that, that are common to all these letters, apart from the two, apart from the two with, where there is nothing that God, uh, that Jesus holds against them, but there's, uh, for all the, the, the churches, all seven of the churches, Christ comes and says, I know, I know what you've been up to. He keeps an eye on every church. And he always ends each letter to each church with let anyone who has an ear to hear, listen. And in the churches that he has things against, there's that promise that I will come. Unless you put things right, I will come and I will do it. There's a, I don't want to make light of things. But a saying kept, re kept recurring as I was preparing this word and as we come to the end of this talk. There's been so much talk, hasn't there, about no deal would be better than a bad deal. And I think Jesus tells this to the church, you know. No church is better than a bad church. No church is better than a church that is preaching a false gospel that isn't preaching the truth. And that's exactly what Jesus will do. He will close that church. He will take that lampstand away and they will not be representative of him on the face of this earth. He ends these letter, as I've said. He ends these letter with those that have ears to hear, let them hear. I think all seven of these letters went to all seven churches. I can't imagine that the whole 22 chapters were ever written out uh, 
seven times for each church to receive its own copy because don't forget it wasn't just the letters to the churches it was a whole of the revelation that John was writing down here you know this church at Ephesus when Paul wrote to them didn't he and said that your love is rooted in Christ this church at Ephesus over the 30 years or so 40 years has lost its most valuable asset love it had moved away from it it, it neglected it it had neglected it. How do we how do we neglect the love? If we looked at a church today, if we looked at our own place even, how could we how could we be accused of neglecting our love for God? We we'll become very sloppy. We become very sloppy in our spiritual work. We become very sloppy in our worship. We become very blasé about breaking bread. We show very little respect when we come together to offer up our worship and our praise to our Lord Jesus. We really don't give it the respect, or indeed him, the respect that we need. Now I'm not accusing, I'm not pointing fingers or anything, I'm not saying if we've got an ear and Jesus is speaking to us, we need to hear it. It may not be that he's talking to, to Great Parks. I don't know what he would write to Great Parks at this stage. But we need to hear as we go through these seven churches because these letters have been preserved for us in the 21st century. And we need to listen because this is Jesus. This is Jesus speaking to his churches. And if he was to point the finger at Great Parks and say, I know what you're doing. I know all that goes on at Great Parks, but we need to hear what he goes on to say we need to be listening to what he does. And that's another fact, isn't it? You know, uh, if we lose our first love, you can always tell. It was, in, it was interesting, I think, during the week. I don't know how many of you have tuned in. Uh, Alistair Begg, their morning service uh, has been streamed live on Sunday afternoons. He preaches to an auditorium that has 1,750 seats in it. And it looks very strange at the moment because they're following guidelines and the place is only a third full. But 1,750, but he preached a sermon a couple of weeks back, which must have been quite an old sermon because he was saying how 900 people attended every Sunday morning. But when it came to prayer meeting on Wednesday evening, they struggled to get 30. They struggled to get 30 out of 900. They had a Christmas Eve service this year in an auditorium that holds nearly 2,000 people and they had 29 and a half people turned up. Now, I know there's reasons, but do we pay enough attention to that side of our church life? Is enough of our church life given in showing our love and adoration to our Lord Jesus. Do we neglect that side of things? Can this letter possibly be speaking to us at great parts? Can it be speaking to you as an individual? We face, we face facts today, don't we? We really only have to look around our country 
I can always remember I used to when I was driving a bus, I used to drive past in Southall in West London, place known as Little India. And I can always remember when the Salvation Army all closed down and it became a Hindu temple. And the country is littered with buildings such as that. As the church is dying, why is it dying? Because it has lost its love for the Lord? Because it has neglected to show its love for the Lord? Many carry on, many endure. That's why it becomes hard work. People will determine to keep things open. That's why churches carry on, but when they got the lampstand, has Jesus removed the lampstand from that church? Are we listening? Do we have ears to hear? Jesus would prefer, as I've said, Jesus would prefer listening, reading this letter. He would prefer a church to die rather than have one that proclaimed false hope to a world that is in need of the love of a saviour. I'll just finish. Wonderful hymn. Wonderful hymn written by Samuel Stone. And I'll just finish with these five verses. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. He elect from every nation, yet one are all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endured. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Yet she on earth of union with God the three in one, mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, on high may dwell with thee. Paul wrote to the Ephesians saying, even before time began, his plan would be that the church of Jesus Christ would be the fulfillment of that plan, would be the means of sharing God with the world. He chooses now to do it through the church, but through you and for me. We must not neglect love. We must not neglect love. We must not allow the work that we do to become so overwhelming that we, we neglect and push aside love because that is the basis of our Christianity. That is the basis upon which our church rests. Thank you.